0: everyone welcome back to the sanctuary we've been out for like a month and we're back in do you love all the changes isn't it great (laughs) you're like okay so we're out in the palm court for a month because new speakers if you didn't notice those those are the things we have Actually, no, we put the new speakers, and they're not quite done yet, but I hope you're already experiencing a better audio experience here. Soon we're going to have acoustic baffling to control the sound, so we think it's going to be just better. I hope you've already felt the improvement, but uh, it was well worth it, and we're glad to be back. Uh, I'm excited to jump into this chapter. If you have a Bible with you, um, would you open to Revelation chapter 12? And why don't you stand with me as we read the Word of God? This is a fantastic chapter and one that I want us to read together. Or I'll read and you read along. Here we go, uh, Revelation chapter 12. John writes, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Verse 10, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short Verse 13, and when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, but the woman was given two wings of the great eagles so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood, but the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured forth from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. a woman in the pains of labor about to give birth. I cannot imagine a more vulnerable position for a woman to be in. She's in no place to defend herself, right? She she is in no position to ask for a time out to move things around her schedule because, while childbirth is a little inconvenient right now. She's got one thing on her mind. Women, you know what that is. Give birth. Get this child out. No matter how strong a woman might be, when a woman is in labor, when she is giving birth, she is utterly, utterly vulnerable, dependent upon everyone else around her. There is no I am woman, hear me roar. That is none of that. She needs the help of everyone around her. She is vulnerable and dependent. A dragon. A dragon with seven heads. A dragon with seven heads and ten horns. I can't imagine a more horrific beast. A symbol of pure power, aggression, and evil. Are you seeing the picture that John is painting here? Are you seeing the vision? Did you notice the contrast between the two? The beauty of the woman and the abomination of the dragon the vulnerable versus the powerful, the helpless against the horror. I mean, to make matters worse, to make matters worse, the dragon is waiting to eat the baby she delivers. Are you sensing the dilemma that we read in Scripture? Are you feeling the stress? If not, let me ratchet it up a notch. This baby This baby that is to be devoured by this seven-headed, ten-horned dragon that's going to be eaten, surely it is impossible that this situation would turn out any other way, is our only and last hope for anything. Friends, Revelation, this book, is not a puzzle to be solved with cool academic distance interests as if it was written just for our intellectual curiosity, we are reading an epic saga. We are meant to realize the precariousness of life, the danger. We're to be arrested by the narrative that our hearts would be gripped with apprehension, beads of sweat on our forehead dripping down, asking, what is to happen to this woman? Why is there such evil that this kind of scenario even exists? Who is going to give help to the child? What hope is there? Uh, We read the chapter... So we kind of know, but this is the ebb and flow of this amazing book of Revelation. You see, up until our study of the book of Revelation, we have learned that humanity is in fact involved in a war. But thus far, it it has been a bit abstract. As we get to this kind of new section of the book of Revelation, chapters 12 through 15, John is doing something interesting, I don't want you to miss it. He is beginning to introduce the characters, or maybe I should say the generals, the lieutenants, the commanders who are behind all of this warfare. Today we learn about the dragon. Next week we'll learn about the beast, the false prophet. Later we'll learn about the, the, the great prostitute of Babylon. But this morning he introduces us to the commander-in-chief, and that is the dragon, That is satan verse 9 of chapter 12 makes it very clear who his identity is it is satan himself and this morning in this chapter we're going to look at three things how the dragon is denied how the dragon gets defeated but yet how this same dragon is still determined friends the book of revelation has made it clear we've talked about i've said that it is it is kind of like a long 22 chapter metaphor of the christian life that you and i live not just now but every christian who lives through all times and cultures throughout what i've been calling the church age that this is actually we are involved in a spiritual war but friends this is this is not some impersonal cosmic battle between abstract nation states we learn right now we are in the middle of a very very intimate and personal conflict Because, you know, this is the half part of Revelation. Revelation has 22 chapters, so chapter 11 was the midway point. From chapter 12 to chapter 22, it shows us that the war we've been learning about from chapters 1 to 11, the war between the world and the church, the curtain gets pulled back a little bit further now, beginning in chapter 12, and we realize, oh, this war between the world and the church is really a war between Jesus Christ and Satan himself. And we're getting introduced to that reality now. In some ways, uh, Revelation chapter 12 is a brief history of the world up until the point we are at now. Chapter 12 is telescoping the entirety of redemptive history into just 17 verses. And it begins, if you're familiar with your Bible... With kind of an apocalyptic allusion to genesis chapter 3 verse 15 when when sin came into the world and everything went sideways and the lord brought uh, basically spoke to humanity and the serpent of the consequences of that sin and in genesis 3 15 we get the, the the hope of the gospel message right away when the lord says to the serpent i will put enmity between you and the woman and there will be enmity between your offspring and her offspring. Revelation 12, in part, is the story of that enmity that we'll be looking at. So let's look at it. The dragon denied. Look at verses 1 through 6. That'll be our our first point this morning. Now, we know without doubt who the identity of the dragon is. Verse 9 tells us very clearly. And it's pretty easy to figure out who the mother and child are in verses 1 through 6. Look Look at verse 5. It says that she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Now, this is obviously a clear reference to Jesus Christ. One of the clear messianic psalms in the book of Psalms is Psalm chapter 2, and this is what it says in verse 9. Speaking of the Messiah, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Later in Revelation 19, we see the same description of Jesus. From his mouth, speaking of Jesus, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Those are some pretty powerful verses. You know, I know one, some, one struggle that people have with the study of Revelation and what we've been reading, and, and Jordan even alluded to it in his prayer, people are uncomfortable with the way God, way Jesus Christ can be portrayed, is portrayed in the book of Revelation. He doesn't seem to fit what I call the hippie, happy, you know, beatnik Jesus that we've all been kind of told that's what Jesus is like. That he's our our coach, our therapist, right? Our our feel-good, a benevolent grandfather, but nothing really more. He's not the kind of God that makes demands on people. After all, he's there for you, right? He's that humble Jesus. And yet what they read in Revelation couldn't be farther from the truth of that. They struggle. In some cases, they don't like because they're hearing about a God of wrath. God seems mean. I actually heard someone tell me that. God. I don't like this. God seems mean in Revelation, He's judgmental, he's wrathful, laying waste to his enemies, destroying the nations, ruling with a rod of iron. That's not the Jesus I like. You know, the more, personally, I know of suffering and encounter evil, true evil in the world, the more I appreciate what I'm reading about God here in the book of Revelation. I think we we can struggle... um, with God's wrath. I think people struggle, the people who struggle with God's wrath, His holy anger, His, his retributive justice, as we're learning in Revelation, do so principally because they don't understand suffering and evil. Now, I want to be clear, they, have, they suffer in their lives. We live in a broken world. We all experience a measure of suffering. We all bump up into a measure of evil. But the, the challenge becomes is, is typically when people make that argument that, that I don't like a mean God, and I say that that's because they don't understand suffering and evil, their reference point for suffering e- and evil doesn't transcend their own personal experience. And since, for us living in South Orange County and the West and America in the 21st century, our experience of sufferings and evil are pretty limited relative to what's happened in the rest of humanity throughout our history, we conclude that the the punishment does not fit the crime, and so I don't like a God that is this way. But friends, when you think about the face of evil, Jesus kind of alluded to it in our prayer to trust in God's sovereignty, the kind of which we've been seeing this week in Afghanistan, and and our study of this book has really shaped my thinking as a global Christian. I don't mean to use a trigger word like we're all a global people, but but in reality, I'm a a citizen of a global kingdom, and I've been thinking more about my role and our role and our brothers and sisters in that kingdom. So, this is an Aramaic letter, noon. It is equivalent to our N. It is a symbol that you'll find all over uh, northern Iraq by ISIS. It's a symbol you'll find in Nigeria, used by Boko Haram. It is a symbol, no doubt, being used by the Taliban in Afghanistan. It means the Nazarene. It is a symbol that is put on every Christian home, every Christian business, and sometimes branded on Christians themselves. It is a way to identify those that need to fall under one of four things under Islamic law. They are given one of four options. One, convert to Islam and his prophet Muhammad. Two, pay the jizya tax, which under Islamic law is compensation that a non-Muslim pays to a Muslim society for not executing them. Number three, leave immediately, and I don't mean they give you time to pack your goods and go and say your goodbyes, like get out right now or convert or be executed. So convert to Islam, pay the tax, immediately leave, or be executed. This is something our brothers and sisters go through daily. Stories are coming out from from Afghanistan this week. We've been reading about it. I posted one on on, on our Realm post, the prayers of, of pastors and Christians in Afghanistan. That's evil. That's evil. The kind of evil that creates human trafficking. The kind of evil that orphans children, destroys families, and wrecks societies. The kind of evil that causes poverty and injustice. We have to ask ourselves the question, do you want a God who's a wuss? In the light of all these things, you don't. You don't want a God who is only mildly disturbed by the atrocities of the Taliban. You don't want a God who's just maybe a little upset, maybe a little bothered by the way women are treated as property or slaves in Islam or objectified by porn or or misogyny. You don't want a God who idly looks at the corruption, the poverty, and injustice of this world and says, it's wrong, but hey, what am I going to do about it? You don't want a God like that at all. You want a God that takes action. You want a God that drops the hammer on that kind of evil and injustice. You want a God that rules with an iron rod because these things destroy. Friends, if there is no justice, if there is no reckoning, if there is no righting of wrongs, if there is no wrath, what real hope is there for this world, right? But here's the dilemma If there is real justice, if there is a reckoning, if there is a righting of wrongs, holy wrath, what real hope is there for you and I who have committed so much wrong, who have sinned, who at the very least don't do what is right and righteous and holy? See, the, the gospel says there is good news that God does offer the olive branch of those who will trust in the mercies of Christ, but there will be a rod of iron for those who don't. And that's what we are seeing here at the end of all things. Why, by the way, this is precisely why, precisely why, back to Revelation 12, the dragon is waiting to devour the child because he knows the child will judge and obliterate all evil, great and small. And so he's ready to. Now, we are looking at a vision, and remember that, this is the the genre of revelation. It's a vision, but also notice, this vision is a bit historical, isn't it? Because the dragon has been waiting to pounce on the child from as early as we see back here in, well, Exodus chapter 1. Pharaoh drowning all the male children of Israel so that the people of God do not expand and multiply. Fast forward to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 2, Herod the king having all boys, two and under, murdered because he knew one of them had to be the king of the Jews. Or maybe Luke chapter 4, Satan tries to devour Jesus at the very beginning of his public ministry by tempting Jesus to deny God and worship him instead. But then in verse 5, look at verse 5. John kind of zooms through the entirety of Christ's ministry, birth, life, death, resurrection, and right into his ascension of glory, he says, but the child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman escapes from the dragon as well, into the wilderness for 1,260 days. We talked about that. It's three and a half years, 42 months. So the dragon's denied. He's ready to pounce, but he's denied the woman." not only did the child and the woman escape but we find out that the dragon gets defeated you Say, where's that let's start in verse 7. now reading in verse 7 to 12 originally i had thought what i was reading and maybe some of you thought this as well that what i was re- reading here was referring to the fall of satan like way back when pre-garden of eden kind of thing and i realized that's not the case at all notice in our text verse 10 particularly John associates the victory of God in Christ with the casting down of Satan. Look at verse 10. And now I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come. Now that salvation has come because the accuser has been cast out. Jesus says something very similar when he sends out his disciples in Luke chapter 10. And they come back all excited. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And what does Jesus said in Luke 10, 18? And I looked and I saw Satan fall like a lightning to the earth. He's referring to the same thing here. What we are reading here in verses 7 through 12, friends, is the heavenly counterpart to the earthly victory we just saw in verses 1 through 6. You see, it's the same narrative, but from a different perspective. It's from the perspective of heaven. In 7 through 12, we are witnessing the effect of Christ's birth, atonement, and ascension to the throne in heaven, and the effect is the triumph over Satan himself. Verse 7 opens up and tells us, hey, look, there's this long war going on in heaven, and throughout the Bible, we get indications of that. Daniel chapter 10 is a vivid reminder that there is a battle happening out there that we don't see, and in Revelation 12, Satan is defeated, and because of this, he was thrown out of heaven. So we have to ask two questions. Number one, how was the dragon defeated? How exactly was the dragon defeated? Verse 11 gives us the answer by simply saying, and they have conquered him. Notice that it's now gone from a, it's a third person plural, it includes us. The victory that Christ won includes us as well. They have conquered him. How? By the blood of of the lamb how was the dragon defeated the blood of the lamb a figure of speech for the death of christ so how the dragon was defeated was the death of christ so the second question we have to ask then is how does the death of christ equal equal the defeat of satan So how was the dragon defeated? Verse 11 tells us he was conquered by the blood of the lamb, the death of Christ. Then the question we have to ask is, if that's how the the dragon's defeated in the death of the son, how is it that the death of the son equals the defeat of the dragon? I think the key is in understanding Satan's weapons against us. I think verse 10 indicates that. Notice two times in verse 10, it's talking about his power of accusation. For the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down. Who accuses them day and night before our God? One of Satan's most powerful weapons is accusation. If you're a Christian, you know what I mean. It goes something like this. (laughs) You blew your temper at your family again. Who are you to go to church this week? you don't deserve grace. How long have you been a Christian, and how much do you not know about your faith? You don't belong here. Everyone around here is perfect, but you, they're better than you are. You don't read your Bible enough. Accusation, accusation, accusation. You don't deserve grace. You're not good enough. You don't belong amongst God's people. Now, if you're a Christian, you know how powerful that can be. If you're not a Christian, or maybe you're an immature immature Christian, you're thinking, well, big deal, so he accuses me, but here's the problem. The accusations are right. You don't deserve grace. You don't deserve to be here. You're not good enough. So, you know, join the club, right? (laughs) None of us are. (laughs) the the problem is his accusations against every single one of us are absolutely true day and night he accuses us before god we get glimpses of this in scripture right zechariah chapter 3 god is there and satan's like joshua the high priest he's a punk he doesn't deserve your grace he's dirty he's sinful course in Joshua chapter or Zechariah 3 God covers Joshua it's a pointing forward to the work of Christ the point I'm trying to show is that there's this kind of scene in heaven where Zechariah is there or uh, 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 Zechariah's recording Satan's there talking to God and he's looking at Joshua you can imagine when he's looking at you and I or somebody else Job chapter 1 Satan goes into the throne and says oh by the way before I leave have you thought about Job that guy's got a problem day and night scripture says he is accusing us before God acting as some kind of cosmic prosecutor against you and I. The problem is he has an airtight case. As a just God, God cannot ignore the accusations against us because God knows the accusations are true, every single one of them. So how does Christ defeat him? Christ defeats the dragon by taking away the power of his accusations. The question is then, how does Christ take away the power of his accusations? Christ does this by taking away from us the guilt for our crimes. Jesus' death pays for our sins. It removes the power of the accusations and turns away God's anger against us. How can we survive justice when we are guilty of injustice? How can we survive a reckoning when we are guilty of so much wrong? How can this be? Jesus answers the question by taking upon himself our guilt and imputing to us his righteousness. This is what both Old and New Testament teach. Isaiah the prophet said this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. I like to think of that as the subjective, psychological, emotional feelings when we know we've done wrong and we are guilty of it. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Look at verse 5 but he was wounded for our transgressions. Talking about the objective reality of our sin against God and our rebellion, all the things we've done. He was wounded for those transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. The New Testament says the same thing. Look at Paul's tight analytical mind. But now the righteousness of God, now he's not talking about uh, God's righteousness per se, but what he's talking about in that phrase grammatically is that there is a righteousness equal to the righteousness of God himself. He's not necessarily referring to God's personal righteousness as much as he's saying there is a righteousness equal to God's righteousness, and it's been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, that righteousness that is equal to God's righteousness, through faith in in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So he's saying the Old Testament has talked about the fact that there is a righteousness equal to the righteousness of God available to everybody apart from the law. How do we get it? We get that righteousness through faith for all who believe. How can it be that simple and so universally acceptable? Because we're all in the same boat. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. What was the mechanism that made that possible? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forth as a propitiation, turning away anger, turning away wrath, propitiating His justice by His blood to be received by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it beautifully, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, that we might have the righteousness of God, a righteousness equal to the righteousness of God himself given to us. So, in this, in this cosmic courtroom, wherever it was taking place, our file reads, paid in full, innocent. Now, Satan has nothing to say that can stick. This is what Paul was getting to in Romans chapter 8 when he asked the question. Who can bring an accusation against us? Paul knew. Nobody. Because there's nobody there in the courtroom. Why? He's been defeated. Cast out. Revelation 12 uses the imagery. He was kicked out of the courtroom and thrown down to the earth. And Satan is in a rage. He couldn't take down Christ. And now he turns his full fury against the people of God. And that's what we see next in in verses 13 to 17. Before we jump there, let me just say this. Remember I said that that chapter 12 is like John telescoping all of redemptive history in the just 17 verses. So, so look at verses 1 through 6. That is bringing us from the Old Testament right up to Christ's work on the cross and His ascension into glory. Verses 7 through 12 show us the eternal, the ultimate significance of that work of Christ. And now verses 13 to 17 show us this reality, how now Satan, because he was, he's enraged, he couldn't get Christ, now he turns his attention and his wrath on the people of God. He shows us this is the reality from Christ's first coming until the coming again, the church age. And the dragon is now determined. He is cast down out of heaven, and the dragon now comes after the woman's offspring, which verse 17, look at the text, tells us the, this is the church. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Who are those? Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And then these five verses, 13 to 17, reveal repeated attempts of the dragon trying to destroy the offspring of the women. And and it ends actually with his ongoing determination. The first time, notice, she flies away. On uh, wings of the great eagle. That, that's, again, an allusion to Exodus chapter 19, right? This middle section of, of Revelation is so um, pregnant, that's an appropriate metaphor to use, so pregnant with allusions to Exodus because it shows this, the, the themes are the same. God's people were oppressed in Egypt and God delivered them while judging Egypt, same themes of the church age, and it's so full of motifs from Ezekiel Because Ezekiel and the people of God were living in a hostile world, a hostile land, stranged away from God, right? And so the the themes are so rich for us, we are living in an oppressed time, and God is delivering his people. We are not in our homeland, and we are in exile in a sense. And so the two wings, that's an allusion to Exodus 19, how God, just like he delivered his people then, is doing it now, right? And, And then there's this verse is it verse 15, I think it is, it talks about some flood of water coming out of of Satan's mouth, and well, what I think that is, actually, just let me give you my my theory on it, but this, we're we're diving into details, what I tell you not to do, so I shouldn't do what I tell you not to do, but I kind of wonder what that is, it's probably because the power of the dragon is in his accusations, and this flood of water coming out of his mouth, it's Satan's way to destroy the church through false teaching, through heresies and abominations, and and you think, well, how bad can that be? Well, we know in our culture the danger of misinformation, of false truths, false narratives, fake lies, lies, deceit, innuendos, mistruths everywhere. We know how destructive that can be, and Satan is just blaring it out to destroy the people of God. Now, the details are interesting for sure, but I don't want to miss the point. That's just my thinking on what that is, but that's not the point. We don't want to miss it. And what is it? Revelation 12 is teaching us the same thing, if you're paying attention, to what we learned last week in Revelation 11, but just from a different perspective. What did we learn last week? That the world is coming after the church. Now we learn who is behind the world, the dragon. But yet God still protects his people. Do you notice, by the way, in verse six, it says, the woman escaped by running into the wilderness. And then in verse 14, it gives us a different perspective that God gave her the wings of eagles and, let, and, and carried her away. The thing I just want to point out is, so did the woman have to escape or did God deliver her? It's probably both, just like in our lives. We think we are, we, we're doing everything and don't realize God is at work all the time, right? God is protecting his people. Again, just in case you missed it, I'm saying chapter 11, chapter 12, it's the same message We, the church, are the two witnesses and the world is in opposition to us and behind this opposition is a defeated dragon and his full fury is being poured out on us. Not only, however, we are protected by God, remember that from the parable of measuring the temple last week, the dragon is cast down and he's a defeated foe. Hope that's encouraging. But... Sometimes the death throes of an enemy are just as dangerous. If you're a history buff like I am, you know that uh, the Allies had effectively won the Second World War, June 6, 1944. We call it D-Day. Pretty much won the war at that point. But the Nazi war machine under Hitler raged for an entire year until finally V-Day on May 8, 1945. 1945. In the same way, Christ has won the war effectively at Calvary, but the dragon rages all the more because he knows his time is short and he rages until the final and full victory of God to be revealed at Christ's second coming. And you and I and every brother and sister in Iraq, in Afghanistan, throughout the world are in that year of struggle and conflict. And what Revelation is saying is we've got to reconcile, come to realization two truths. There will be skirmishes there will be battles, there will be casualties, but the victory is assured. And notice, friends, even the way John has set this up is is bringing across this message here at the middle point of the book of Revelation. The middle point, right? It's 22 chapters. Chapter 11 is the middle point. We had a a metaphor, a vision in chapter 11 of God protecting His people, yet they're being witnesses in the world being attacked by the world. And then in chapter 12, we have the same kind of vision that God is protecting his people while the dragon's fury is being unleashed on them. Same message. And right in between that, right in between that, notice your Bible should say the seventh trumpet. Right in between, almost like these two things are bookending, in the center it says, the kingdom of this world has now become the kingdom of Christ. Christ is the king. So in the middle of this book, we have the message of this entire book right there that the war has been won, but the world and the dragon, they're raging, but God will protect His people. Don't back down. Don't bow down. Move forward. And verse 11 tells us how this victory was won. Look at your text. And they have conquered Him. The people of God have conquered Satan. How? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. That word in the Greek is where we get our English word, martyr. It can be rendered two different ways. It's interesting. By the word of their martyrdom, for they loved not their lives even unto death. I like the way the New Living Translation says it. And they've defeated him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. They would love God more than anything else. If that meant more than their lives, they'd give that up too. And friends, that has been the testimony of the church. Tertullian, the church father, says the, the growth of the church, the blood of the martyrs, is, the, is the, basically the, the seed of the church. So how do we conclude this chapter? It, it began with an impossible situation, and yet it turned out exactly opposite of what it seemed would happen. It couldn't have been more unexpected if you are just reading what you saw there in verses 1 through 6. I think ultimately that is the point, friends. In this broken life, we face situations that seem impossible and overwhelming at times, as if they couldn't turn out any other way but horribly, yet God prevails. In fact, in fact, God uses the very defeats we perceive to accomplish the very victory He intends. Charles Spurgeon, British preacher in London in the 19th century, says, said, I have come to love the waves that have crashed me upon the rock of ages. What's happening right now in Afghanistan, what's happening throughout the world, in, 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 in where persecution of Christians has truly intensified in the 20th century, unlike any time ever before, researcher David C. Barrett has estimated that in 1996 alone, 160,000 men, women, and children Christians have been martyred for their faith. The crushing of the church under communism under fascism, under Islam, the compromise of the church under materialism of luxury and ease. It never looks like the church is going to survive, but she does. She always does. But that's what the cross symbolizes, and that's what Christ calls us to as individual Christians. We win not by prioritizing ourselves, but by giving of ourselves. We gain not by our increase, but actually by our decrease. We become first when we learn what it is to be last. Friends, the persecutions and the problems we so fear is the purifying we so often need. If you get that, if you get that from what we've been studying here, you're untouchable in life. If you understand that the very persecutions and the and the very problems that we fear are the very things that purify us. If you get what Spurgeon says, I've loved to lo- I learned to love the waves that crash me upon the rock of ages, you will be untouchable in your hope and your joy. Even if it seems impossible and overwhelming. Revelation 12 reminds us, God has got this. And he's got you because he's committed to protecting his church. So friends, it seems to me, you might say, well, then I wouldn't want to be a Christian. It seems like a dangerous place to be. There's no other alternative better than that. When you have God himself saying, I will protect you. I'm measuring you out. I will give you the wings of the great eagle to deliver you, but I have a job for you to do. Take joy in the battle. Take joy in what comes because the world needs us to. because the world needs us. The world needs the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Revelation 12. And we thank you, Lord, that the dragon is defeated. But, Lord, what is hard is the fact that the way you defeated the dragon was the death of your son. That, Lord, that's the message you show, show us all through Scripture. We don't win by exerting our strength and our power. We learned that from the book of Esther, too, way back at the beginning of the year. We win by submitting ourselves to you. Because, Father, at the end of the day we're not worthy enough, we're not wise enough, we're not strong enough to dispense justice, to know what will bring peace, or to really establish righteousness. So help us to humble ourselves to you. You alone are worthy, wise, and strong enough to establish these things. Help us to trust and obey and do what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.